Welcome into Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace. Coming at you, it is Tuesday, November 7th, another late night podcast because I can't get my act together until the middle of the night. Uh, but here we are, happy to talk to you guys today. Hopefully, you guys have enjoyed week two in the NBA as much as I have. And in classic content creation fashion, uh, hours after I posted my episode last week, we finally got our long-awaited James Harden trade from the Philadelphia 76ers to the Los Angeles Clippers. I know this is old news at this point, but I think the trade is still pretty relevant. Obviously, Harden playing his first game with the Clippers last night. Uh, can't have an NBA podcast without giving you my take on that trade. We will go through the details before getting into my reaction on all sides of that deal. And then we will get into watching Wembenyama, man. I've been really dialed in on watching uh, Victor Wembenyama, of course, the number one pick of this past year's draft to the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, all seven foot four of him. It's been super exciting to watch so far. So can't wait to go over with you guys exactly what I've seen so far. Uh, but yeah, let's get right into it, guys. Let's not waste any time. And we are on to the James Harden trade. So uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we should just start off every episode with the James Harden tracker. Has he gotten moved? Yes or no? Uh, obviously me and, and basically everybody else who follows the league kind of figured that this deal to the Clippers was going to happen at, at some point, right? It just didn't really seem like we ever got uh, any other suitors for James Harden besides the Los Angeles Clippers. He made it clear from the jump that's where he wanted to go. And that's ultimately where he went. Basically, exactly a, a week ago, it was in the early hours on Halloween, it was announced that James Harden was finally sent over to the Los Angeles Clippers. And quickly, we're going to run through the full details of the trade, starting with the Clippers. They, of course, received James Harden, P.J. Tucker, and then Philip Petrusev. Um, who was a bottom-of-the-bench type of guy for the Sixers. Um, the 76ers, they received two first-round picks, one of those being an unprotected first-round pick. Uh, the other one had some pretty heavy protections on that as well. A 2028 first-round pick swap, two different second-round picks, Robert Covington, Nick Batum, and K.J. Martin. And then, of course, because the Oklahoma City Thunder can't help themselves and Sam Presti seems to uh, stick his nose into every single deal that goes on, they were actually involved in this deal as well. Um, and they received a 2027 first-round pick swap with the Clippers. So uh, real quick to summarize, James Harden, P.J. Tucker are the two main pieces going to the Clippers. The Sixers received two first-round picks, a first-round pick swap. A couple seconds, Covington, Batum, and K.J. Martin, so three different rotation guides in addition to some draft capital, and the Thunder receive a 2027 first-round pick swap with the Clippers. So I'm going to go through, give you my reaction, of course. Let's start off with the Thunder and just quickly try to explain how and why they got involved in this deal. Um, to summarize, Sam Presti, the general manager of the Oklahoma City Thunder, has uh, you know approximately a million first-round picks over the next several years that he's accumulated through uh, many different trades over the years. They really have too many picks at this point where like they feasibly cannot use all of these draft picks. They do not have enough space on the roster and they already have a pretty strong presence of young talent on that roster. So they're going to start, you know, compiling these picks, uh, making moves to turn two picks into one better pick um, and maybe, you know, use some of this draft capital to bring in talent onto their roster. And so they saw this as an opportunity to trade a first round pick that the, the Sixers were able to recoup for James Harden. In return, they received a pick swap. So, you know, if you're asking why on earth would they trade a, a tangible first round pick that is guaranteed for the opportunity for a pick swap, it's 
A, for the reasons I just explained to you, and B, because they're they're willing to make a gamble, right? They're basically taking the bet that by, hey, by the time 2027 rolls around, the Clippers might be in total shambles with all the aging superstars that they have on this team. Um, and so this could be an opportunity for us to swap picks with them and get into the, the NBA lottery when, you know, by that time we project to not even be close to the bottom of the standings in order to be in that spot. So they took it as a gamble that it could easily backfire on them, but uh, really, the Thunder are the only team in the league that can make this type of ga- gamble. Most teams would prefer to just have the tangible pick that they can use to move in other deals and whatnot, even if there are heavy protections on it. The Thunder are like, hey, we will take the opportunity for a swap that gives us a really good chance to move up uh, a significant amount in the first round in a couple of years. So that's obviously enough talk on the Thunder's involvement on this deal. Let's move on to the outlook from the 76ers first. Um, After reviewing that deal, I really like what Daryl Morey and the Philadelphia 76ers were able to get in return for James Harden. Um, I know that, like, you know, it's kind of weird to analyze how everyone else is analyzing the deals, right? Like, I've seen uh, pretty heavy criticism of this deal on both sides. Most of what I've seen has been pretty negative toward the Clippers, more so than the 76ers. But I have seen a fair amount of people just kind of make fun of Daryl Morey for this deal and, um, you know, not really like what the Sixers got in return, which I just don't really understand. Now, if you look at the circumstance, again, this has been Dragged on for months, Harden has made it very clear he's not happy. He probably would have quit on his team, and and he eventually, who knows what would have ended up happening if he had stayed in the Sixers, but I never really saw a world in which he ever would have put on a Sixers uniform again until this deal was was taken care of. So he was just really a dark cloud that was going to be hanging over a team that's started the year really successfully by all accounts. So, you know, the Clippers or the Sixers were able to kind of take a win on this just in the fact that they were able to take care of this early. The earlier you can get James Harden away from the team in the state that he was in, the better. So that is a massive W within itself. Also, we remind you that he's, what, 33, 34 years old at this point in time, only under contract for this upcoming season. And most importantly, like, their hands were tied, right? Like, this guy, again, was not going to play for their team, and they were able to recoup two firsts, a first-round pick swap, a couple seconds, and some role players. I think that's a pretty solid return. Now, if you're making fun of Daryl Morey, you can just make fun of the fact that he just absolutely loved James Harden. And so there, there might be some real heartbreak here. Like that was his guy. Maury in, in his stint with the Rockets was obviously known as uh, one of the pioneers for NBA analytics. And he's always been really analytics driven. And, you know, Harden kind of broke the metric with his 2018 season when he won MVP and how efficient he was as a scorer and all that good stuff. Like there's crazy stats that back that up. And it seemed like Daryl was kind of blinded by what Harden was during his time at the Rockets, uh, maybe thinking he could still kind of rejuvenate some of that time uh, with him getting back on the 76ers. And so if you want to make fun of him, you can make fun of the fact that, you know, he went out and got his guy. He met him at the airport. There was that corny photo of them kind of embracing when he uh, acquired James Harden from the Brooklyn Nets. So that's kind of funny to make fun of. But if, if you're looking at, at the logistics of the deal, the situation that Philly was in just in the past couple months, it, it's a massive win for the Sixers. And if you want to go even farther back to the fact that, you know, they got a, they got rid of Ben Simmons to acquire James Harden, like whatever you think of Harden and whatever you think of, of how disappointing the Sixers were in the playoffs the past couple years, it's still an upgrade over whatever Ben Simmons was the past two years. They had a real chance to win with Embiid playing at an MVP level, and they went out and they got a real superstar to compliment him, and they tried their best. They obviously came up short, but I think what they got from Harden was a real success. So, you know, and not only that, I, I don't think the Sixers are, are done making moves, right? They gained a lot of flexibility in terms of contracts and cap space to put themselves in a position to make another move later this year. I don't think that this 
is going to be a move that comes anytime soon. Obviously, again, we're only two weeks into the season as I sit here and record this. So no other teams out there are going to be really looking to make a move. Nobody's trying to pull pull the plug on what they have going on this early in the season. But because they were able to get this James Harden deal done early, you can develop a real rotation, get an extended look at, at Tyrese Maxey as that point guard, as that primary ball handler, see what he looks like alongside Joel Embiid, who's obviously been fantastic this season as well, develop your rotation around those two guys, and then evaluate what you need at the trade deadline. So they are going to have you know contracts to move around. They have a bunch of, of wings that they can throw out. Um, you know, they're getting three wings back in this deal. And, and again, Robert Covington, Nick Batum, and KJ Martin, guys that provide a decent amount of, of defensive versatility um, and have obviously, you know, as far as Covington and Batum been in the league a while. So uh, again, I just think that, you know, this move, they're, they're not done making moves for the 76ers. They've looked incredible early on this season. Maxi looks fantastic, averaging 26, 7, and 5. And, and again, just a seven game sample size here. Uh, but he's also making really big strides as a playmaker as well. So again, I think the arrow's pointing up and and there's really not a, a negative spin on this for the 76ers from where I'm sitting looking at this deal. Let's move on to the Los Angeles Clippers. So uh, my big takeaway from their their side of this deal is, you know, how did they find a way to go all in when I already thought that they were all in? So that's kind of the interesting thing here, right? Like, you know, given the situation and everything I just said for both sides, this is an overpay. This is an overpay for James Harden. I will admit that first and foremost, right? Again, you're giving up multiple firsts. You're giving up a slew of role players for a guy that's quit on several teams, literally quit on three teams already. He's aging. He has underperformed in the playoffs, and he's only under contract through this season. So in a nutshell, yes, it is an overpay for James Harden. However, I do believe that this makes the Clippers a better team for this season, and I think that that is all the Clippers care about. They are already all in, as we've talked about. Their superstars are aging. Their superstars cannot stay healthy. Uh, and frankly, my outlook on the Clippers over the past couple months is, you know, I was begrudgingly putting them in that tier of, of contenders um, really against my will just because, you know, if everything breaks right for them, if Kawhi and Paul George are healthy when it matters the most, um, they have the pieces to go all the way. They also have a coach that has won a championship and is regarded as one of the, the best coaches in the entire league in Tyron Lue. I think that's worth mentioning as well. So the pieces have always been there on the Clippers. Now, they kind of fell out of favor with me because I was looking at this gauntlet of a Western Conference. And um, at some point, I just kind of, you know, when I talked and did my season preview podcast, I was mentioning how, I'm always going to lean at least this season in the Western Conference with youth, with guys that I believe will be out there because, again, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's an incredibly long season. And I think the healthiest team is going to be the ones to survive in this Western Conference. Um, and I think, you know, not to say that they you know, they traded for a spring chicken and James Harden by any means, but to, to his credit, he's been relatively durable, at least during the regular season. And I think he is going to help them win regular season games. And I think all things considered, this puts the Clippers back into that contender tier. Now, I'm not doing a full tier ranking here. I, I don't fully believe that they are one of the top contenders in the league, but I define contender as, you know, how many teams in the league can you really say, is there even a path for them to feasibly win a championship this season? And I think the Clippers are now on this list. They're right there with Denver, with Boston, um, with the Lakers, I think are in that conversation, the Warriors as well, the Bucks, of course, you know, maybe Philly if things break their way, but this isn't a long list, right? It's, it's kind of like seven teams at the absolute maximum that you would put there. And I think the Clippers are back in this group. So uh, again, it, it also benefits the Clippers to again, get this done deal done early. It's, a, it's kind of a win-win in that regard that they were able to get this thing over with. 
Um, same thing I said for Philly, because again, if there's any good team in the NBA that lacks cohesion uh, and lacks minutes played, but you know, amongst their best players, it was the Clippers. Like, you know, the, the amount of games that Kawhi and Paul George played together last year was staggeringly low heading into the playoffs. So there really wasn't much optimism there. They have a real opportunity this season to uh, develop some chemistry, see what that rotation looks like. You know, maybe they have another move to make just like Philly at the trade deadline, but we're a ways away from that. I know they have a lot less flexibility than Philadelphia does right now, uh, but there is a lot to like about the Clippers getting better this season. Now, again, it is an overpay, but in a nutshell, all they really care about is having stars in the building for their precious new arena that I believe opens up next year and finding a way to maximize this window with Kawhi and Paul George. It's going to be really, really shitty for the Clippers in about two years either way. Like, there's really no way that this... You know, they come out on top in two years and being in, in position for, um, you know, a, a sneaky contender or, or a team on the fringe in a couple of years. No, they are going to be at the bottom of the standings in a couple of years. Everybody in that building kind of knows that. It's just a matter of if they can finally bring a championship to this team. And that's all they're really concerned about. And I must say that I do think this makes the Clippers better. Now, the negative thing from a basketball perspective with the Clippers is, you know, despite me think, saying that they're a better team and a better roster overall, I do despise the fit of Harden next to Westbrook. This is what the third time that they've played together. Um, and I really, really hate the idea of their starting five being Westbrook, Harden, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Zubak. I think it would make more sense to bring Russell Westbrook off the bench. Now, it's a one-game sample size, but it does seem like this that is the, the five-man starting lineup that the team is going to roll with, with, you know, Russ and Harden in that starting lineup. And I, I just I just don't understand it. Like, we've, we've seen this play out. Um, James Harden and Russell Westbrook, uh, you know, off of the ball does not make a ton of sense, in addition to the fact that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard prefer to have the ball to get in their offense. Um, and Westbrook is obviously a, a non-shooter at this point in his career. Like, like we... He's not providing any real floor spacing. You already have another non-shooter out there in Zubak. Like, I know that there's ways to utilize Russ as like a cutter and a rebounder. And, and you know, to, to the Clippers' credit, they found a way to rejuvenate Westbrook to some degree. They've certainly gotten more out of him than his previous couple stops, so I'll give them credit. But, like, what are you so concerned about with Russ? Like, they're treating him like he's some local legend. Like, the dude is, is played in, like, a total of, like, 20 games for the team. Like, I know he's made a really great impression there, but send that dude to the fucking bench. Like, that's where he belongs. That is going to be the best version of Russell Westbrook is going to be an energy player that comes off the bench, gets a shitload of rebounds, ignites the crowd, um, and, again, helps them win games in the regular season. It would make far more sense to bring in Terrence Mann, who that's a, another important part of this trade, right? He was supposedly the sticking point, the guy that Philadelphia really wanted a couple weeks ago and, and the Clippers weren't willing to budge on. Um, and that was the holdup of the deal before. It seems like the Clippers won that battle within the war, right, where they were able to maintain Terrence Mann. If you were able to maintain Terrence Mann and you cared about keeping him so much, then put that man in the starting lineup. I think he's a better on-ball defender than Russell Westbrook at this point in his career. He's certainly a better shooter. Um, he certainly has less of a problem being active off of the ball, like he's shown a willingness to set screens, and he's used to playing alongside Kawhi Leonard and Paul George certainly more than Russ has. Um, so I just think it will make way more sense if they eventually push Russell Westbrook to the bench. I think this starting lineup uh, of Russ, Harden, Kawhi, Paul George, and Zubak is is ridiculous. Like, I'm sure it sounds nice to say you have four Hall of Famers in that starting lineup and it looks good and helps get people in the arena. Whatever, man. If you're really trying to win a championship, eventually they will need to make that switch to put Russ coming in off the bench. Um, and obviously it's a long season, right? I could just be ranting about nothing uh, for them, you know, to eventually make this switch, you know, before April. 
Uh, and I think that they will at some point, but I do think it's a little lame that they're trotting that lineup out right now. Like tell, tell Russell Westbrook to get over it, uh, bring him off the bench. You can't worry about his feelings in this situation. So that just about does it. That's my thoughts on the Clippers trade, the inevitable deal that finally got done. I'm glad we can finally all stop talking about it and move on and watch these teams play. I do know that the Clippers played last night. I can't pretend to be super locked in on that. I know that they lost the Knicks. Uh, you know, the Knicks are obviously a pretty gritty team. I was too busy watching my Celtics suffer their first loss of the season uh, while I was anxiously watching Monday Night Football as well, waiting for a Garrett Wilson touchdown that never came. Uh, anyway, that's just kind of my miserable uh, fandom last night. Uh, I'll survive. The Celtics are still awesome. Let's move on to talking about Wemby, man. Um, it's been so much fun being able to dial in on, on Victor Wembanyama over the past couple weeks. It's Definitely, in my opinion, the most fun I've ever had watching a rookie in the NBA. Obviously, I'm more dialed in this season than I ever have before, so that, that could be a little bit of bias kicking in there. But uh, it's been a lot of fun, man. And let, let's kind of break it down because we know the expectations for this guy are insane. We, again, also know that we're only two weeks in, but I do think we have at least somewhat of a real sample size to evaluate what we've seen on the court. Let's start off with the statistical profile for those that haven't been too dialed in. Averaging 19 points a game, 8 rebounds. Two assists, so not a ton in the playmaking department quite yet. Averaging a steal a game and 2.6 blocks, which is pretty nuts. Um, shooting 46% from the field as well as 32% from deep. First and foremost, like, yes, offensively, it's going to be pretty awkward almost all of the time, especially with him uh, driving to the basket. Like, I think there's some times where you, you know, when you consider the fact that he's seven foot four, seven foot five, like, there's some move that he makes where he looks unbelievably fluid, right? He's so quick on his feet. Um, he does have a pretty tight handle where, like, it's like, you know, he looks like a giant guard out there, um, depending on some plays. In other plays, he just looks super awkward. Maybe it's because he obviously doesn't have the weight or strength to be taking these bumps from NBA players as he drives to the hoop. Um, he's not sure if he just wants to power through guys with his length um, or go over guys or, or what that may be. So it, it does look really awkward. Um, but obviously, we have to remember the dude's like, what, 19 years old? Like, we, he has a long career in front of him. I think that he's going to become a lot more polished. Um, but the biggest surprise, I think, about his offensive game is his three-point shooting from what I've seen, right? And it's not necessarily what his form looks like, um, which I do think, for what it's worth, looks pretty good, or, or how accurate he's been, again, just shooting 32% from three, which is fine. But it's really just how quick of a trigger he has from beyond the arc. He's really comfortable taking threes, taking, you know, somewhat contested shots. Like again, when you're seven foot four, you can just shoot over dudes. It's really not a huge deal, but he, he's so quick to, to go to the three point shot. He's, he's shooting five a game, which I really didn't expect. Um, you know, maybe he did a, a lot of that overseas. I, I can't say I was super dialed in for him when he was playing in, in France last year, but that's really jumped out to me. And despite that awkwardness that I was talking about before, he really does have incredible touch around the basket as well. With his quickness and, and how much of a matchup nightmare he is, he's, he's constantly finding ways to getting switched onto smaller defenders. You know, it, it's unbelievable within the past week, like the number of teams that just don't have a real five on the court to begin with. And then when you throw in the fact that you're expected to guard this seven foot four freak, like they're, they're really scrambling and making all these crazy rotations trying to keep him out of the paint. But most most of his buckets are going to come from him getting that mismatch, somebody just chucking the ball in the air, lobbing it into him, and him just taking advantage of that mismatch. And I, I do think for how awkward he can be driving to the hoop at times, his touch around the basket is, is obviously incredible. He's got a super soft touch, and he does finish quite well. Frankly, the people around him aren't making a ton of plays for him either. If you've watched San Antonio at all, like I have been somewhat impressed with some of the guys in that roster, right? Like I think... You know, 
most impressive was Devin Vassell. His, his ability to, to take and make tough shots has definitely jumped out to me watching Spurs games so far. I've been impressed from what I've seen from Zach Collins, but we're focused on Wemby right now. And the highlight is that they don't have a traditional point guard on the court with Wemby a lot of the time. So they have kind of let Sohan run the offense most of the time. And, you know, he's kind of figuring a lot of things out himself as a young player and he hasn't done the best job of, of getting Wemby involved in the action and, and getting him easy looks throughout the game you know the closest thing they have to a real point guard is Trey Jones who he's he's been pretty solid as well I think he is uh, the, the person I've seen set up Wemby the best so far it'll be interesting to see when the Spurs kind of pull the plug on this Sohan experiment and just switch to Trey Jones in the starting lineup because I do think that that gives them the best chance to win games but they know they're not really going anywhere this year so they might roll with Sohan a little bit more but all that to say it is pretty impressive how Wemby's been able to score the basketball despite the fact that he hasn't had a ton of real playmaking around him defensively let's kind of change sides of the ball here it's, it's kind of exactly what I expected right his presence and how much he affects the other team uh, is really unlike almost any player in the league right now um, you can really just feel him all over the court. It's pretty interesting to see that, you know, defensively, he's not usually guarding the other team's five. If he's out there with Zach Collins, usually Zach Collins will take their, you know, the other team's traditional five and he will guard the other team's power forward, if you will. It was super fun going into those matchups with the Phoenix Suns. Uh, on Halloween and then on November 2nd as well. Him guarding Kevin Durant for basically the entire game. We'll get into that a little bit. So it is pretty funny to see him, despite being on the perimeter a lot of the time, he's still affecting the game in, in so many ways. Most of the blocks from what I've seen that he's accumulated are, you know, it's not even people that he's defending, right? He kind of comes into the play out of nowhere and has blocked uh, so many jump shots. It, it's really unbelievable. And not only that, the shots that he's blocking... Uh, I feel like his blocks are all are like Bill Russell blocks. And and I say that in that, you know, Bill Russell is known for being obviously one of the best shot blockers ever. But what's so notable about the way he blocked shots is that he would, you know, often just like catch the ball, like literally it would be like a block rebound in one where he would, you know, literally take over the possession instead of like, you know, just sending it out of bounds or sending it back to the other team or whatever. You know, Wemby's not doing that per se, but these blocks that he's making on perimeter jump shots are turning into transition baskets the other way so frequently that I'm not gassing him up to say that he's the most valuable shot blocker in the league right now because of the transition opportunities he's creating because he's the only dude in the league that is consistently blocking jump shots it's amazing you know nobody you know I guess a couple guys have obviously tried him at the rim and have come up short I'm sure he's been dunked on before as well uh, but that being said most of the guys that are, are trying him or if you will are guys that are taking open jump shots that they think are open and then Wemby comes into the frame and blocks a shot it's it's really unbelievable. So let's get into a couple of the matchups I was really locked in on last week. The first game against the Suns was on Halloween night. That was obviously really electric. I know the Suns are still, you know, severely undermanned. They were missing Booker and Beal in that one. It was really Kevin Durant versus Spurs. And, and the fun thing about it was obviously the fact that Wemby and Durant guard each other for large, you know, stretches of the game. The Spurs ended up stealing that one uh, late in the game. And Wemby finished with 18 points, eight rebounds and four blocks, which was awesome. But really his breakout game, if you will, came a couple days later when they played the Suns again, this time in Phoenix on November 2nd. I believe that was last Thursday night. And that was unbelievable right Wemby obviously finished the game with 38 points and 10 rebounds that wasn't the most impressive part about this game um in Spurs fashion weirdly they start off in a, in a massive lead in this game they seem to be starting games really well and they kind of tail off as the games goes on and this was another one of those situations where they started the game super hot they had a 20 point lead in the first half and and the Suns slowly chipped away at it uh, Booker was playing in this game and was unbelievable 
you know, despite how awesome Wemby was, I can't say he was the best player on the court because Booker has been uh, truly, truly a top five player in the league in the only the two games that he's played so far this season. That being said, he was awesome that night. Kevin and Durant and Devin Booker kind of hammered away at that lead. But in the third and fourth quarter, Wemby came alive, and it was really too much to stop. Uh, a lot of what we saw was, again, taking advantage of mismatches on the low post, um, finding a way to just roll to the basket off of screens, and, and, and just, you know, people literally throwing it up like it was Randy Moss on the pass. Like, he's just, you know, giving him the sign at the three-point line, and, and Sohan or Kelvin Johnson or whoever just throws that shit up, and he's able to make a miraculous catch and finish it. I should mention that Wemby as a screener is absolutely terrible. He's clearly so scared to get hit below the waist, and um, understandably so. I'm sure. I'm, I'm not even sure if, if Pop is going to coach him up on that because they probably want to keep him healthy as well. But uh, there were a few stretches in the game last week that I saw where he like literally was setting the worst screens that I've ever seen. He was either immediately slipping to the basket or or like moving to the side to avoid contact. So we'll see if he develops as a screener. I don't think anybody's really too locked in on that. Uh, but either way, back to that Suns game on the second. Well, and it wasn't just the, the shots down low. He literally, you know, got into his own as a jump shooter as well, right? He had a, several threes that game. You know, one of them in particular, Drew Eubanks of the Suns is guarding him on the perimeter. You know, he spins off of him, jab steps, and then just hits a pull-up three at, at the end of the third quarter, which obviously um, stunned the crowd there. It was insane. Again, the confidence of this guy, you can really see it in these games as he builds momentum, how much more willing he is to create his own shot, and that's where things get really fun, and, and you're just going to see things on a court that nobody else in the world can do. So yeah, man, it's been a lot of fun watching Wemby. I think in totality, you know, the ceiling is is as high as it's been advertised, right? Like these flashes that we've seen on offense where he is genuinely unstoppable are, are really, really fun to watch. The highlights are unlike anything I've ever seen. And then of course, you know, defensively, uh, I think he's been as good as advertised in that, you know, area as well. And again, it's even not, I, I focused a little bit too much on the shot blocking earlier. It, it's not just that, it, it's really the impact that you have on the court. Um, once he blocks one shot in a game, dudes are constantly looking over their shoulder, whether it's a jump shot, a runner in the lane or around the basket, you know, how many shots people haven't taken and have kicked out for contested jumpers when they could have just laid it up over any other player in the league. Um, there've been several of those as well. So again, I think the ceiling is as high as advertised. You, you see it more so on the offensive end and, and what he can become there. And the product on the court has met the expectation. I would say so far seven games into his rookie season, all that to say it's absolutely wild that he, there is a world in which he doesn't win rookie of the year. I know that that, could entirely contradict everything that I just said, but I do just want to make a little footnote at the end of this episode here that, again, he might not win Rookie of the Year just because of how amazing Chet Holmgren of the Sun Thunder was. Um, Chet obviously had the second best odds of, of Rookie of the Year heading into this season, and Chet is averaging 17 points a game, eight rebounds, three assists, uh, two and a half blocks as well on, on also really insane shooting percentages. Except the difference between Chet and Wemby as of right now is that the, the Thunder look like they're poised to make a real playoff run, which could benefit Chet. Currently, I, I just checked for those curious. Wemby is obviously the, the odds-on favorite at minus 370, and Chet is plus 440 with the second-best odds. Um, this is definitely going to be a two, two-horse race. I really can't see a world in which you know these guys don't win the award unless they get hurt, knock on wood here. It does look like Scoot Henderson's had a pretty rough start to his career. No other rookies have really impressed like these guys have. Shout-out Jordan Hawkins. So incredible game for the Pelicans the other night as well. But 
That being said, I have loved watching Wemby. Implore you guys to uh, tune into Spurs games as well. Hopefully, I'll have an opportunity to see him in person in the next couple of weeks as well. But that just about does it for me today, guys. Quick episode, I know. Really just wanted to get my thoughts out there on the James Harden deal that finally took place last week, as well as my thoughts on two weeks of watching Wemby. Uh, he's the real deal, man. It, it, it's fun being on the wave with everybody else. I know it can be annoying when everybody's telling you to do something and everybody's gassing up one player that hasn't really proven himself yet, but... Uh, it's a lot of fun, man. It, this is America, right? We just, we love oversized shit. Just watch the giant French guy out there. He's a lot of fun. You guys will will not regret it if you tune in for a Spurs game. But that just about does it for me today, guys. Uh, next week, I do hope to bring a guest on. I think it's been a little bit too many solo episodes in a row of me just yelling into my microphone at my computer screen here. So I will try to get a guest on, see if we can do a deep dive on one of the more interesting teams in the league and get some uh, alternating perspectives on what where those teams are headed. Um, if not, and I do end up doing my own episode, I'm thinking about doing the top five breakout players of this season. You know, really the guys that have impressed me the most, because I do have a long list of guys that I've absolutely loved watching and, and really dialing in on some of these surprise players early in the season. So with that, I will let you guys go. Be sure to follow at Words with Wallace on everything on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube as well, at Words with Wallace there. And I will talk to you guys next week. Peace. 